Welcome to Drunk on Comics Podcast, episode 430. Now this is a fun one because we're going back to doing some interviews. COVID's got us all locked up and we got many people to talk to. And in this special episode, we have David Hayes. Now, he's been a part of SourcePoint Press for quite a while. And although I know many of the people behind that publisher, I haven't really interacted with David all that much at some of the cons that we all go to. So this was great for me to learn some new things and as well as kind of just have a fun time. And boy, did we have some fun. We've talked uh, theater and film to professional wrestling to a certain dress incident. There's that and much more. But most importantly, we're also talking about David's new book coming out dial p for peanuts now you can go to your local comic book shop and tell them to pre-order this book coming out at the end of november or even hit up sourcepointpress.com and see the many offerings they have as well as picking up this book while you're there uh we'll get more into our thoughts of the book and everything that i've already mentioned so sit back grab a cold one and enjoy drunk on comics podcast episode 430 an interview with david hayes that's important right oh no no i hire one that's that's the only <laughs> thing i can do <laughs> you can get really far in life by hiring well yeah right yeah i mean th- i'm still in you know fake it till you make it mode and i'm pushing 50 so <laughs> hey i mean you know whatever gets you through the day right <laughs> <laughs> Well, David, we want to start off a little bit by finding out a little more about you. Obviously, we're going to talk about your newest project coming on out, but let's talk about the man behind behind the, the writing quill. Have we ever had David on this podcast? No, we have not. What? How have how we no. missed you at the booths all these years? Well, it's probably because I don't do many things well. Like we've just established. <laughs> so when you this is this is like the you know wow we really need someone for this week we're we're hitting the bottom and Bob Sally's been on forty three times. <laughs> Call Hayes. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I want to say without like putting anyone else under the bus, I will say at least Travis is below you. So <laughs> generally, yeah. <laughs> is that a that's, that's just in, like, in any aspect of life, you can say that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is. But yeah, so um, so what do you want to know? Uh, there's a yeah, there's we can we could stretch decades back into stupidity or or um. Well, that's that's always good too. Like it, it, it was something uh, when you messaged us about um, this book coming out. I I really realized I was like we have never really chatted with David, and I've seen you at plenty of cons, but I, usually I'm typically either dicking around with Travis or talking to Casey or anything and finding out where Jason is at somewhere in the <laughs> Comic-Con. So, so yeah, so, so I'm glad to finally get to meet you now and, and chat with you, and hopefully when things go back to normal, I can see you at some conventions and we can chat more then. Yeah, definitely. 
this is fun. So I, I mean, I I uh, I listen to the podcast. I enjoy it. But um, yeah, so it's it's weird, you know, when you roll. I don't say roll in a circle, but it's a, just a whole like a like a traveling carnival, you know. And <laughs> and sometimes you you spend more time with other people at the traveling carnival, but everyone's there, and uh, it's interesting. You guys are like selling like like waffle cones, and I'm like running a weird game on the other side of the carnival, <laughs> and we just never. <laughs> Well, I, I guess one thing I'd have to say is, do you like karaoke at all? Oh, dear God, no. Okay, that that might be a, a reason why some of our past don't cross. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot yeah. of the people that we hang out with I, after I the con. I avoid the karaoke at the con like a plague. <laughs> I think our whole it's social just, circle no, is... No offense, it's this really weird little subculture within a subculture yes. that I don't get. Yeah. I don't get it as much either, but I still enjoy the terrible singing that some of us can do. It, it really, it just gives us, like, not that we need a reason, but it gives us a reason to, like, drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my reasons for drinking are usually waking up. So, you know, I've, I've, I feel like the tippy top of Maslow's hierarchy where I can just, I can justify drinking at all times. I love it. That's great. <laughs> To be the the singing, so I mean, I was I used to get paid to sing poorly, and I don't think I want to do it for free. Uh, is it a garage I mean, band? I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. Just that uh, was so incredible. Like I used to do a lot of musical theater uh, back in the day when I was acting, and I, I don't know why anyone would ever cast me because it was horrible. But maybe that's maybe that's why because there's this this freak factor to to someone just doing something that they're terrible at. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to relive that humility or hum not humility. What's it called? Humiliation. What, humiliation. Oh, that's yeah. it. We I mean we <laughs> understand we do this podcast poorly and somehow people still listen to us. I think it is the train wreck factor. <laughs> I get you. I've built like a you know multi-decade career on being a train wreck, so <laughs> I understand how it works. So now that we know how this podcast is going to go with two train wrecks heading right at each other. <laughs> well, it feels like it's a so beginning the of a math like, problem. What are you hauling in your train? And I'll tell you what I'm hauling in my train. So when they crash, that's going to be an amazing... So what if you were, you were your podcast was a train and it was hauling what? Oh, grain alcohol for sure. And Xanax. Like you're hauling grain alcohol. I'm probably hauling manure. So the grain alcohol manure crash mm. is good. Did we lose them? Oh, that's where most people lose me. <laughs> they open a book and they're like, oh, manure, and then just walk away. Well, that can't be true because... As of right now, you're the only author from Source Point Press who has had a movie produced and come out that, based on their 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 book. That's so. true. <laughs> did you read that one? I did. I actually wrote a very lovely review about Rotten Tail on the Drunk on Comics website a couple years ago. <laughs> very cool. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, so well, I mean, Rotten Tail is like a distillation of my past life. And, uh, yeah, my past life was really wrapped up in the B-movie world. So I was an actor and a producer and other kinds of just ridiculous things. And so Rotten Tail kind of put that uh, 
uh, it opened up a bunch of new doors as it, as it closed a bunch, which was really great. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch the film yet, but I do love B horror movies and I can't wait till I get my hands on it. Um, I really loved the book and I just think it's super cool if, you know, if that's where it's coming from, like the, the distillation of your past life into a book about <laughs> becomes a B movie, you know? Right. So that's, it's really weird. Cause so, I mean, I've, I've been, I was, as an actor, I've started in about 80, um, like really bad horror movies, produced a bunch, wrote a bunch. And then, um, it took, uh, moving uh, to a life of, of graphic novels and novels and, and non-performance things to be able to, to put a cap on it. Cause I got to the, the, the director of Rotten Tail uh, is a very old and dear friend. And I produced his first feature for him a decade ago, probably longer, a little longer. And so it was a nice way to just come full circle with it and, and let a lot of people uh, uh, experience this whole goofy crappy b-movie giant easter bunny ridiculousness <laughs> i love it what was it like uh the differences of taking a, i mean obviously writing a comic book script is different than writing a movie script but how was it adapting from something you already knew and loved here's the trick so it started as a movie script way back in the day we're talking 2000 and two-ish long time ago and and no one wanted it no one wanted to take a look at it no one cared uh and uh, eli roth's company uh had a little twinge of almost in like 2004 2005 but they never uh moved forward on it so it just languished and and i thought it was a really fun story and i had been completely obsessed with uh, holiday horror movies. So, you know, like the Silent Night, Deadly Night series uh -huh. is a family tradition every Christmas, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> and I just, I, I love it. I love taking things that, that people think are, are institutions and then completely flipping them on their heads. And uh, uh, Easter was ripe. Easter was just so ripe for this. And so the script was written and shopped and it came close a couple of times and it just never happened. And I got really upset with it. So I went on, remember the old digital webbing sites? Maybe you're too young. <clears throat> digital webbing was like a, a classified ad space for comics. Oh. Like a long, long time ago, long, long time ago. Uh, well, in the early 2000s. And so I ran across Kurt Belcher there. And I said, hey, I've got this movie script about a giant Easter bunny. And he's like, well, I can do a giant Easter bunny. Uh, that's my bad Kurt Belcher thing. He's from Kentucky. <laughs> I can do a, he's going to hate this, too. I'm going to do Easter bunny for it. He doesn't talk like that, but that's that's my Kurt Belcher voice. And, uh, and so uh, we, we decided to make it a graphic novel, a 60-pager. We were going to do three issues, uh, three, like, 22-page issues or 21, however it worked out. And... We finished that up, and it got signed three different times to three different companies, and then they just went out of business, each one of them, in succession. So no one wanted to see my movie, no one wanted to read my comic, and I eventually just put it out on my side. I printed up like 10 copies from uh, Kablam, I think, <laughs> so to tell you the quality wow. of, of that. And um, it just sat around. I had moved from uh, Phoenix in the West Coast to for back to Michigan for family issues, 
And I, I got here and we started taking care of my parents and my niece. And uh, I just gave up any pretense of filmmaking at that point. And then I eventually met Josh Werner and Trico Lutkins, it's for, who discovered Source Point Press together. And then Travis came in, and then uh, they really wanted IPs. And I was like, well, I got this thing you can have, you know, whatever. <laughs> Just take it and, so I never have to look at it again. And it turned out really good. Uh, people seemed to dig it. There was the, people resonated with it, and I think it was largely because of the con stuff, you know. And you, we we talked briefly about being at conventions and, and how that opens up a bunch of doors, and being able to go on a convention run with this title uh, that never happened before. I think really opened a bunch of eyes because now there was exposure to it, and I could like convey the the passion I had for the stupidity of the story. And it just, it sold a bunch and uh, uh, some connections of mine and Travis got together in the film world and SourcePoint produced a movie. That's very, That's very it. excellent uh, here we are, <laughs> winding road there for that. Well, and it does kind of bring us, because you said you like to take uh, like beloved sort of things and turn them on their head, which brings us to what you're working oh, yeah. on now, what you're putting out now. <clears throat> dial P for peanuts and I just have one question uh, yes. why sir would you do this <laughs> okay so did you guys did I send it to you to read oh yeah yes, yep. okay and and first did it make anyone angry oh no well there was a couple parts okay. where I'm, I was like hmm but also I, I get a bit of a adult kind of got to look at it from the perspective of what you're trying to go for in it. I personally love stuff that is like exactly Perverse. what you said, where it's, you take something that's like, like I'm the type of girl who loves seeing like the little baby dolls made into these horrific sort of vile demonic creatures. <laughs> Isn't that fun? So that's fun. So it's, it's, I get it. I get it. And then with peanuts, so, like, regardless of your age, unless you're, like, 90, you grew up with the Peanuts gang. And uh, and so, and here, I'm going to explain a little bit about the gestation of this, too. So, like Rotten Tail, this didn't start out as a graphic novel. Uh, this started out as a stage play. Hmm. And uh, it was produced uh, 2010 uh, in the Southwest and, you know, ran a few shows. Uh, it was really well received. We won some awards for the play and it just sat. And uh, I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner, but the idea of, of the Peanuts gang grown up uh, getting invited to an Agatha Christie-esque sort of murder house for uh, their their past sins was something that was really translatable to the graphic novel. So again, I tapped Kurt Belcher. He was way in. Uh, my co-writer and uh, director of the play, uh, Michael Carey. We were all behind it, and uh, uh, you know, and Westlake did the, the wonderful colors on it just to to make it feel like this this newspaper uh, comic strip. And then we, Michael and I, largely did this uh, came from my real consternation with the peanuts gang in general. I, th <laughs> this is going to sound so bizarre, but the peanuts gang, like, like Charles Schultz kind of pissed me off once I got older and I'm looking at it, the inclusion of the peanuts gang and how um, everything was great. And, and uh, it's so nostalgic, but really what Charlie Brown taught us was that mediocre is okay. 
That's there's true. like no reason to strive for anything more. I mean, look look at that Christmas tree as an example. <laughs> that Christmas tree was weak. It was weak. It they didn't try. And so what they did is banded together and made Charlie Brown feel good. Yeah, they made it better his through love. Real lack of enthusiasm. They're they're also and pretty so weak thought, on so dancing. What if, what if this guy, this Charlie Brown, who who is a completely a change agent for his little neighborhood children, he was the one. He was the change agent in their lives that that pushed them on paths that uh, uh, they may have wanted to go on, but really weren't quite prepared for. And so, it kind of taught us that mediocre is okay. It it taught us to to accept less than our best. And I'm not like being completely serious about this, of course, but that's like like the feeling that I had behind it. So I thought, hey, what would happen in logical progression? And I take things to extremes, hence, you know, giant mutant Easter bunnies. <laughs> what would happen if these characters went to their logical extremes, given the lessons that Chuck taught them? And of course, you know. I don't want to give anything away, but there's there's awful nihilism that would happen, um, a, a belief in one's abilities that just doesn't quite match what their abilities are, uh, the this harboring of, of things like uh, the little red haired girl that you know yeah. just, he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to let go of it mainly because he can't let go of anything, and so the whole gang has been touched by uh, Charlie Brown in their youth, and that touch is, it was like an anti-Midas touch, driving them to to uh, lives of just cynicism, in I, a nutshell. I want to say one thing that, growing up watching the Peanuts, like I always loved it for Snoopy a little bit more, and kind of as you were oh, saying, yeah. the mediocre... Oh, mediocre, mediocrity. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that's the word. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one yes. of the things that I always hated with Charlie Brown was the damn football scenes. Like, yes. stop doing it. And so, without giving too much away in this, I thought it was going to go a different way, where it'd be like finally, and it didn't go. <laughs> it didn't go that way. But I was on, you know, reading this, being like, oh, oh, this could this could turn into finally that that revenge that that could you know good grief get over it kind of thing but right. yeah that 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 was one thing where personally he's still just too good in this so it's he, funny he's that... good natured yeah. yes um and he, i don't think i don't think that would kill anything because that's really i mean his good naturedness even at the even the hor most horrible times you know when they're gone camping and they're on the rapids and it's charlie brown's good naturedness that saved them but it, that kind of masked the Charlie Brown good-naturedness that got them in this to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> it's he's he's a tragic optimist for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean I love I mean I, I truly love the Peanuts gang. I love I love of Charles Schultz's work. I love Agatha Christie and uh you know and I thought wow, what a what a wonderful time we're living where I can, you know, ride parody laws on the skirts of, of legal things <laughs> and, and try to pull this off. <laughs> and you, I mean, you you really are, like, <clears throat> pushing the boundaries of these characters, I think. In a good, I think in a good way. Um, Lucy being my favorite because you tied where she ended up at with her childhood so neatly. 
that I was like, well, of course this is how she turned out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our big four, um, without telling anyone who they are, our, our big four really stay true to form. Um, everyone else was really an ancillary character in the strip, so it was it was uh, a little more difficult to, to put their trajectory together. But, um, you know, and I think Patty's probably the most contentious one. So we'll see. You know, if I'm not causing emotions in people, then I'm doing this wrong. I think I think anyone who, um, you know, Tony and I are dead inside, so it's hard to cause emotions in us. Um, but <laughs> I think anyone That's, that explains the booze. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think anyone who has sort of that fondness for and like the childhood attachment to the peanuts would read this and probably be offended. Which is exactly the point, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think offense, sure, but really, like, step back. And and, and I, um, I mean, I teach uh, in communications and stuff at a small business college, and uh, and I'm always telling students like, step back, figure out why things work. You know, look at our messaging, look at commercials. Why? Why do they work? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? And and I think that as a as a as a culture, as a society, you know, the 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 American, you know, generally, you know, white, Protestantish, waspy Americans that that us really put a, a lot of stock into the Peanuts gang. Step back, look at this, and what were they really doing? You know, was it? Does this eternal optimism can it sustain itself? And it really can't. You know, Charlie Brown can't be who he is for his entire life. It just couldn't work. Um, and, if, and if that did happen, this is the effect he would have, you know, take it to an extreme, of course. Right. I uh, I do want to say uh, one of the, the scenes, the final scene with the bridge, that really took me back to everything because that was one of the most iconic, like, strip settings that they had for Peanuts is talking on the bridge, you know, about random things of life. And I really like that you included that to... Because obviously this is all taking place in a mansion that really there wasn't ever that within the show really to bring back to a setting. But I have a, a question about uh, some sound effects. So whoa, whoa, whoa. Was that supposed to be kind of like the talking of the adults? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do in a non-spoiler answer. Okay. 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 <laughs> well, that's what I was trying to like talk around. <laughs> yes, that 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 one stuff. We're talking about a, a murder mystery, right? right. So you're like, oh, Can't I wonder what away. I can talk about. Yeah. But um, I would say that your assessment is accurate. Okay, because that also was a big thing of childhood hearing that weird trombone noise thing for people talking. Yeah, was you so should weird. have a version yeah, of good. this book because they're all adults now, right? You should totally have a version they of this are. book where they're just, that's the whole wah, dialogue. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. Did just children hear that? Or was it this specific children? Uh, and if it's these specific children, did they really grow up? I mean, they haven't they haven't grown as people. Right. They've just gotten older. Damn, David, now you're getting deep. I know. It's really thought <laughs> a lot about it. job, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and, you know, of course he did because, again... If you look at the 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 type the prototype for the character as children and where you took them as adults, like it is a very logical 
timeline that you took them on. It's none of them were like, oh, that there's no way they would have ended up there. Like they were all very like well thought out and kind kind worst case scenario of their life sort of situation. Yeah, so it's worst case scenario, but without the the um the ideology given to them as children, it could have turned out really cool, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Damn you, Chuck. Damn you straight to hell. <laughs> well, what is, I, I really liked, uh, I mean, to name a name of person here, what Schroeder turned into from piano to what he's... What he became. Yeah, what he is now. I think for legal reasons, we have to call him Shredder, but it's spelled the same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and what he mentions of shredding. Yes, I just that was another one of those. It seems logical, almost going from classical piano to what he is now in this book, and yeah, nothing really. Ju- like I was kind of expecting there's something to be like a way totally opposite type thing, but they all it just all felt like oh yeah, I could I could see that yeah. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on on the character development part of it, and so I mean, if you look at Schroeder, so he was uh, he's like you know you ever go to like a community theater, and there's that 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 girl there who's the best singer in her small town, yeah, and then she'll go to like NYU and quit three weeks in because she just met a thousand of herself. Yeah, I was that, so that I was that girl. <laughs> Is it hard? I was, it's difficult, isn't it? When you figure out, like, I was great here, and now I've just met prototypes of me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Better ones. And so, <laughs> what, would, what would Schroeder have done? He was fond over. He was the music man. Yeah. And as, as children, and he goes off somewhere, and then he, he chooses this life, and with this life comes a certain set of entitlement, and that entitlement results in, you know, whatever happened in that hotel room that we're not going to spoil. <laughs> well, speaking of character creation, um, a little off topic from the book, but more towards you. Uh, I heard you've had a uh, a wrestling career. No. Oh God! If you can call it that. <laughs> uh, it was so uh, I uh, wrestled uh, um, in the amateurs for a little while, and I've always been always been fascinated with the idea of professional wrestling and like storytelling and performance arts and just like sweaty fake man violence oh. and so uh i i went into that world uh briefly um my character was uh his name was joe brony and uh <laughs> <laughs> and we you know a jabroni is yeah. someone who never wins so the idea was that he was like oh in a thousand and i had a singlet and headgear and just all kinds of pads and i did a few matches um always lost and you know i would book myself in detroit this is in the southwest in uh, the West Coast, and uh, uh, my finishing maneuver was called the D-Town Shuffle, which meant that I, I ran away. So if I could, <laughs> if I could effectively run away, then I, I would lose the match via countout, but I wouldn't get beat up. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, and then after a few matches, realizing that my knees won't hold up, and the rest of me will not hold up as well, I uh, transitioned into a color commentary, and I worked for uh, a few different promotions um, on the south, southwest and west coast, and then I called a few things in Michigan as well, and then uh, kind of put it to bed and uh, just left it as a fan. Although I do have a very weird, um, like, Italian uh, giallo, or giallo, I don't know how to say that, Italian giallo, um, that 70s masked killer 
genre of movies and a professional wrestling uh, combo thing that I want to do called Sleeper Hold that's uh, been been ticking around in the brain for a while. That sounds like an awesome title, that's for sure. Well, just that... Yeah, I don't know how awesome it's going to be inside, but it's <laughs> definitely going to be weird. <laughs> you still you still ever watching wrestling? Yeah, I keep up on... Um, I like AEW, and I watch NXT, and everything else just pretty much falls by the wayside. Uh, I don't have a lot of time, so I, I pick and choose. Uh, I'm still friends with a few people out there in the world, and... and... Yeah, not keep uh, track of what they're doing. Lynn's always hates it when I start talking wrestling with people. I do, but it's it's I I find it awesome that a lot of people in the comic book industry do enjoy watching wrestling, and it's it's just as you were saying too, everything that's going on now in the world, uh, AEW is just killing it. I'm loving their writing, and I think that's why I personally like it is the storytelling. They have so much better what they're doing with their characters than pretty much everyone else. See, I, I agree. And I think it's light, largely because they're letting these people do what they did, you know, in a VFW hall that worked. And with some tweaks, of course. And uh, the inclusivity of uh, AEW is totally impressive. Uh, I love the fact that Sonny Kiss gets a push as uh, an out, you know, gay man. And he isn't relegated to, like, an adorable Adrian Adonis, you know, kissing people and and sort of heel type character it just happens to be a really athletic gay man which is so badass and that's just that's just indicative of i think um the the group of younger people um youngish millennials that are are, are running the company so oh yeah i'm a big fan big fan well uh one of the going back to to the the book who do you feel this would be best uh if you had to pitch it to people anyone listening to this obviously hitting on the nostalgia hitting on that mm-hmm. kind of trying to subvert their expectations like give us your 30 second pitch is pretty much what i'm saying for this sure uh remember I say... our listeners are drunk so <laughs> <laughs> right. so even if they're drunk <laughs> You can you can click on so even even the worst drunk has some long term memory. Short term is shot. Short term is gone and dead. But long term memory tells us that I used to feel good when this gang of children would show up on my television. I knew a there was a holiday coming, or two it was summer. So there's a holiday or summer coming, and that's kind of what we feel when they show up. But it's it's it was a lie. I'm going to tell everyone right now, if you love the Peanuts gang, you did it for all the wrong reasons. And it's how you made you feel as a kid. And it's a lie. That group of children really messed you up. And this book is going to show you how much they messed you up. Because you're going to really enjoy it when they get what they deserve. (laughs) That's perfect. Now, one of the things I like to ask uh, writers, and I do the flip on for, for artists, but have you ever dabbled in drawing oh yeah but i'm terrible <laughs> i don't have i don't have the patience the the same way like i've produced like feature films and um you know i've directed but i've never edited because I, I simply don't have the the patience to do that and and, and i know that it's kind of like the um not the right way of thinking because there's there's a certain level of patience involved when uh you're dealing with words right and you're putting together like a novel 
and you're 75,000 words in and, and you're writing this thing. Yeah, I know there's there's patience there, but the the ability to stay focused on a single image long enough to to draw it out to in the way that I would like to see it uh, or to like edit a scene together, a three minute scene in using frame by frame details. I, I equate them both and I just I can't I, I don't have I don't have the patience for it with myself or the process. In your writing process, uh, do you pretty much like exactly what you have? Do you have some people look at and give you feedback, and are you more of pushing against that because of what you envisioned? Or how, how do you go about kind of taking some criticism before it goes to, to page? So it depends on what it is. With, uh, like, Peanuts, um, we took all the criticism and workshopping a play. So I knew the story worked. This the the translation of the story to the page is where um, I uh, took a lot of Kurt's uh, and and Kurt Belcher was really instrumental in doing that because he's going to think visually and as a filmmaker I I think visually as well but I his way of static pacing uh, really worked out for this so I'll usually um, take that script and I'll send it to the artist that's working on it if it's a, a graphic novel for example and see what they say and look at their pacing um you know i work with dan gorman a lot and dan will add or take away pages from a script he just will because it's it's his expertise and i think relying on the expertise of others is really the most important aspect of this now if they want some big story changes uh, i'll probably work against those story changes mainly because i do uh, i i'm a big plotter i plot things out i have um, you know, beat sheet outlines. I, I make every decision in my story before I start, like, the quote-unquote drafting of it. So I, I'm not stuck in the middle of a page trying to make a decision. And I think most of my editing work and most of the, the opinions I garner come from that outline or that beat sheet phase, that plotting phase. Because if I can figure that out and someone can help me with that, then the drafting is very, very quick. Um, I'll do uh, some dialogue things, you know, usually reading dialogue out loud to see how it sounds in a human face. Uh, but other than that, um, it, it really, most of, most of the editing and, and uh, uh, collaboration comes from the plotting phase or into the artist phase. Have you ever had like a huge, reg like not regret, but a oh shit moment after you're reading something where you're like, man, if I would have just changed one little bit of dialogue or changed the setting of one scene and anything that you've written that like afterwards you're like, man, I think that could have been a little bit better. Oh yeah. Everything. <laughs> I mean, that Absolutely. Makes sense. I mean, every time there's, there's not a thing there's, there's dialogue in rotten tale that I just cringe at when I hear it. Uh, but again, you know, there's, I, I came to grips with this a long time ago that, um, the last thing I did is not the last thing I'll ever do. Uh, there are, you know, going to be flaws that I see that no one else does. And, uh, when we're talking about, you know, just, a, a, a prolific, uh, a level of being a proficient or prolific in a career that the next project is already started, you know, there's, there's no stopping. I can't stop not thinking of new things to do. It's just, it's one of those things. So I've learned to put things to bed. Even if, even if I know that, oof, oof, there's some early stuff. I'm like, Oh, oof. Uh, 
there's stuff in the Rotten Tail graphic novel, and I'm like, oh, God, why did I do that? <laughs> but, you know, tomorrow's another another thing. So after this book comes out and is highly successful, um, will, oh. we, <laughs> will we see the stage play come to Michigan so that I can go watch it? And is it the logical sequel to You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown? <laughs> um, I'm gonna start with the sequel first. Like, it's a spiritual sequel to "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." I mean, <laughs> and yes, um, that's kind of. I mean, it's it's a. I view this as a direct sequel, non-canon, mind you, to every Peanuts special. And you know, we minded the comic strip really too. So you know, we went deep dived in the in the in the fifties and sixties to peanut stuff to try and find uh, some of these great elements. But uh, yeah, I, I believe so. And um, the stage play, uh, I don't know. You got a budget? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back with you on that. So one. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Now, one of the things that we always do here is pair a. You know, booze in a book, a, a drink that yep. we would feel like would go with a book that we're reading. So what do you feel like listeners and readers of this book should be drinking while while reading it? Uh, I think much like uh, any mystery mansion where people end up dying in great numbers, uh, a whiskey neat <sighs> is the preferred drink with this. Because that's probably what you're going to get served before the lights go out and you end up dead. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty perfect. It does. Yep. Now, I do want to ask about uh, another new project. Uh, you have some essays about Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal. And... <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a little side hustle going on. Uh, so, <laughs> I, uh, I I love film history. I write a lot of film history. I, I do some stuff for Diabolic Magazine. And um, I don't, I'm not as, as deep in it as I used to be, but I, I still uh, skirt the industry from time to time and I found a group of people that uh, were really into film writing and they've come from all different walks of life so there's authors and artists and filmmakers and academics and you know graphic designers and poets it's this group of people and I wanted to uh, take a an actor for example who has uh, largely had a uh, uh, how would one put this and be a real shitty quality movie career? I think is the probably technical term for it in terms of like our first book is, uh, is about Steven Seagal and Steven Seagal has about 70 films, I believe 65 to 70. And so I thought, Hey, let's, let's do a book on essays chronicling the career of Steven Seagal from the first movie all the way to the last movie. And I took a bunch of volunteers for it. And we, like I said, we have this eclectic group of people writing essays uh, about Steven Seagal and the book's called hard to watch the uh, films of Steven Seagal. And there's some <laughs> love letters in there. There are some hate letters in there. There is one of the writers tried to uh, explain um, Steven Seagal's character in a movie using like organizational leadership theory. There's just the, the weirdest things, the weirdest looks at these movies. So the Steven Seagal is one. We're doing a Chuck Norris one called Missing the Action, uh, the films of Chuck Norris. And then I've got a uh, super secret third one that we're going to debut pretty soon. But yeah, this is just a, a fun collection of, of just interesting people writing essays about interesting movies. 
Not good, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that they're not good makes them interesting. Yeah, I mean, because there's some people that love, like, the first three Steven Seagal movies. And then there's a succession of him growling into a camera for 15 years. <laughs> yep. Like, again and again and again. And and it's, it, for some, the challenge for some of these is trying to make, you know, get a thousand or so. Each one of our essays is a thousand words, no more. And uh, they, they largely run the gamut. I just had someone send in um, a, a hand-drawn comic strip. That they did trying to explain this Steven Seagal movie. So <laughs> I'm for it. Let's do it. That's awesome. Okay. And of course, Jason Westlake did the covers. You've probably seen those pop up from time to time. And if you're ever looking for Jason at a con, he's the guy with no one at his table. <laughs> he really we found that he really loves it when we when we call him Hollywood. Um, <laughs> so that's our nickname for him here at Duncan. Wanna know why he loves it? Because you're the only ones that do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what makes us special. <laughs> just... it's, oh yeah, it's special. He's special. You're special. Hollywood's special. There's just so much special going around. <laughs> All right. So if people want to get Dial P for Peanuts, what do they need to do? Where do they need to go? They can ask their local comic shop. It's a. Uh, it was in September's previews, so that's still available. They can go to uh, SourcePointPress.com. And the pre-order is up there for that. They can message me, and I can shoot them that way. Um, and then the, I've got the pre-order link on the front page of my site, davidchays.com. Perfect. Now, I have one final question that uh, got yes. from, I'm not going to say who said to ask this, but I thought it was interesting enough. But something about a prom dress? Oh, I wonder who asked about that. <laughs> You don't need an answer if so you don't want to, but it sounded well, pretty awesome. Uh, this prom dress has been used multiple times. I'm going to need to uh, have you clarify in what instance we're talking about. Oh, there's I mean, I've, I've worn a dress quite a bit. Uh, a, a number two incident? Oh. Why would I tell anyone about that? I don't remember <laughs> who I told about that. I'm doing my research. <laughs> You're de- you, man, you're deep diving. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we made this movie called Backwoods. It's the first feature uh, I ever wrote, uh, quote-unquote wrote, because no one read the script when we go, went to go shoot, so it was all made up anyway. Uh, but I played this character called Luther, who was born in the backwoods, and when his mother is killed, um, he puts on her dress and takes her scalp and dispatches the young people that are responsible for it. You know how we do and this is like this is literally 20 years ago that this happened and uh the dress that i wore in that i had already worn it for a year because i did a uh, musical version uh of carrie uh the the it's called scary the musical and we were in chicago and we ran for a year and i played pj soul's character was a cross-gendered musical version of carrie and so of course i went to the prom every night that we had the show in my prom dress, which was my sister's prom dress, mind you. Because, um, yeah, it fit. So, <laughs> and it was this beautiful royal blue. And, is you know, I got this royal blue thing because my Joe Brony colors were like the Hawaiian blue, the, the, the lions. Nice. I don't know. Maybe it's a theme. But uh, so I wore this dress, and we're in the woods, and we're shooting over the course of, like, it was a real fast shoot, like seven days. And it's one of those really ghetto backyard things where if you point the camera three feet in the next direction in the woods, you're in a different location. 
So uh, we had we were catered by Brown's Chicken in Chicago, and Brown's Chicken is incredibly greasy, mm. and therefore I had to uh, commune with nature during this shoot. And so I had gone off into the woods to, um, you know, number two, and uh, being unfamiliar with actually doing something like that in the woods in a dress, I tagged the dress. Yeah. And, oh. Not so easy, yeah. is it? <laughs> no, it's not. No. I, I wasn't aware of the level I had to hike that up. You know, because <laughs> being in it for a year, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm solid, man. This, this dress and me, we're, we're kosh. We do things together. But we didn't do enough things together, and uh, yeah. But I got to tell you, that dress got more mileage out of it. Most people buy a prom dress and wear it once, and it rocks. This thing saw this thing had a life. Yeah, that has a life of a perfect thing for uh, a comic or writing a, a small play or anything. The life of a dress. Wow. Yeah, if, if the costumes in, in some of the places could talk, I was. Uh, the greatest theater company I, I was with, um, it was a, I just started, I had embezzled a bunch of coffee. I was working at a Starbucks in Chicago and I had just dropped out of film school. <laughs> Imagine that. And I was uh, embezzling coffee and giving it to this theater company so they would put me on stage. And uh, it worked out. I said, between that and the dress I already had, got the job. And that's when people started to pay me to sing poorly. <laughs> And now we're round round robin right back to the beginning of us recording today. Full circle. Yeah. Well, David, I want to say thanks. Thanks for uh, for coming on board uh, with this uh, fun trip this afternoon. Heck yeah! My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, with that, uh, we usually say say stay thirsty for something. And what are you thirsty for? I have found a newfound fascination with Founders Lager. Yeah, we're in Grand Rapids. We're, we're pro founders, so. Yeah, and, and I'm not, but uh, it's in Aldi now. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm cheap. Yeah. So, but I found it. I discovered it. It was a. I'm not usually a big lager fan, but it was good. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we'll we'll wrap it up with "Stay Thirsty for Founders Lager." Awesome. Woot! And revenge. <laughs> Stay thirsty for revenge. There yes. we go. <laughs>